How can your financial wellness benefits provide expert financial guidance for every employee? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of Shift Shapers is brought to you by Benazon Healthcare Advocacy. Your clients and their employees expect more service, more responsiveness, and more help than ever before. You need to focus on building your book. How do you do both? Benazon. To learn more, go to benazon.com or click the Benazon logo at the top of the shiftshapersonline.com page. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're pleased to be speaking with Chris Whitlow. Chris is founder at Educate, that's with a K in the middle, and a subject matter expert on what is becoming an ever more important well-being component, which is financial education in the workplace. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Before we get started, we get into the heart of the matter. Talk a little bit about your background, because I think it's instructive for what we're going to talk about later. Absolutely. Well, I think I just happened to enter this industry at a really interesting time and grew up with technology all the way from the beginning of of the retirement planning industry and the industry itself in in terms of uh, the 74 ERISA Act. And my background was unique in the sense that I, I was interested in computer programming, but I was also interested in the stock market. And so I, I got my first real job at Morgan Stanley working with retirement plans in that field. And naturally, I think, progressed towards wanting to utilize technology and how we, how we did things. And throughout my career working in the retirement planning space, it was just a, a natural inclination, I think, to notice the changes that we were making, whether it was moving from annuity-based uh, investment options uh, to 40 Act funds or the transparency of uh, the fiduciary with the Pension Protection Act. And constantly through those changes was trying to figure out, you know, how can we make a better mousetrap? How can we be more efficient in, in what we're doing? And so my background was just utilizing the, the technology that was available to us, seeing what the, the industry was providing and using the retirement planning instruments that I had learned to ultimately lead me to where I'm at today, which is, uh, as you had mentioned, educate. So let's level set. What is financial wellness? If you had to, to sum it up in a, in a few sentences, what is it? That's a great question because I think people oftentimes get confused between financial wellness and financial wellness tools. For us, we say that financial wellness is not a number. It's not zero or 100% funded. Financial wellness is really a state of mind where you can feel comfortable in your skin with your finances so that it's not affecting the everyday decisions that that you're making and, and whatever those outcomes end up being. Oftentimes, we look at financial wellness products or financial wellness tools like the 401k or the retirement plan is a, is a wellness tool. The budget is a wellness tool. And so those tools can help you achieve financial wellness, but they aren't necessarily financial wellness itself. Financial wellness is holistically that state of mind where I am feeling well about where I'm at with my finances. 
Is it still, as it was years ago when I was a registered rep, is it, is it still about helping folks find goals and, and working towards those goals? Is it, is it just that basic? You know, I think traditionally we had looked at it from a, a whole, right? Because we were looking at it from the financial wellness product perspective of the retirement plan. And we said, well, in order for somebody to be financially well, they needed to have retirement readiness. They needed to be 100% funded for their retirement. And as you know, with the change of generations, the baby boomers to the Gen Xers to millennials, the word retirement, how we think about what our financial goals are, tend to be different now than what we've traditionally seen from either our parents' generation or our generation. And so I think, yes, it, it does encompass some of those goals, but you have to look at those goals individually at each individual employee or each individual person, because that's where you're going to find out what financial wellness or what those goals mean for them. So ultimately, we want to get those individuals. We want to get people to the state of being where they feel comfortable in what they're doing. They're able to operate efficiently with their financial selves. But the goals uh, are going to be really dependent on what they're trying to accomplish. And as we've seen empirical data from, from the folks that we've worked with, it's really all over the board. I think it, it heads in one direction for sure. I mean, we all, we all want to achieve this, you know, financial dream, but everybody kind of seems all over the place in terms of what they're trying to achieve, whether or not that's um, starting a family or getting through, you know, paying off student loan debt or trying to figure out how to feel comfortable in their career choice, trying to go back to school, purchase a home. There are so many things out there that we are constantly trying to achieve financially and everybody kind of fits somewhere differently on that spectrum. So how big is the need? I mean, what's the scope of the problem that you're trying to solve? It, it uh, Yeah, that's a great question because the scope is, is literally everybody almost at all stages of life. I don't think a human goes through a day without thinking about something financially. I mean, if you think about how big the scope is of eating or how big the scope is of healthcare, I mean, these are things that we're constantly being challenged to think about. And so if that is something that is constantly at your forefront in your mind, then it's, it's definitely a, a problem that's worth tackling. There have been a lot of traditional sources for, for both employees and individuals to use over the years. Why aren't they working anymore? Or, or is it just a question of getting engagement with a, with a set of tools? Well, I think it's a couple of things. One, it's, it's how you think about those tools. And two, it's the way that, that people interact with those tools and, and how our world is changing. So when you first think about financial education, we talk about it through literacy. We think of it much like a, an educational course, right? Like you're learning math, learning to read, you know, learning the basics. And the reality is, is that most people, while they're dealing with something financially, you know, that the, you're dealing with it on a day to day basis, they're not going to approach learning about finances the same way they would a university course. And you don't retain all that knowledge. I mean, usually when you go through, a, let's say, an algebra course or a calculus course, you're not walking out a, you know, an expert in mathematics. It takes a long time for you to work through, you know, the, the process in order for you to get to that point to where you are the expert. And there are only a few of us, right, in, in, in our careers uh, who decide that we're going to 
do this. We're going to actually become the experts in, in this particular industry. So for the average person, it's not really you know appropriate to think that they're going to study financial literacy or, or, or how to deal with finances uh, the same way they would a university course. But if you look at the general behavior of people, how do they interact with finances? You can see a completely different picture. You know, we visit our tax advisor once a year or twice a year. We visit our financial advisor maybe once a year to the max, maybe, you know, four times a year. We deal with financial issues like uh, a mortgage broker maybe once every three to five years. And so when you look at the pattern of how individuals are interacting with their finances and you think about where they're at and, and how they're, they're looking at those challenges, then you go back to the traditional way that we've been trying to teach this stuff or, or engage people in this, uh, in this information. And you just see that it's not going to work the way that, that we had thought about it. And so you have to then take that, the traditional way of doing things and you have to kind of turn it on its head a little bit and create a new way of helping people engage in something that we've recognized a, a pattern for. And I think that that is where you're starting to see this emergence of financial wellness tools and, and programs that's starting to happen. And now a word from our sponsor. Today, you're being pulled in multiple directions. Employers want you to deliver a higher level of service and employee satisfaction, and you want more time to grow your business. How do you do both? Benazon Healthcare Advocacy is the answer. Benazon helps plan members understand, utilize, and maximize their health plan and answers their benefits questions while you improve productivity, increase client retention, and grow your book. The best part about partnering with Benazon is that your agency gets all the credit. Clients see your logo, while the Benazon team of subject matter experts work to ensure resolution to specific member information and service requests. Each agency gets a dedicated telephone number and year-round, 24-7 customer support that answers the phone with your agency name. Turn your benefit on with Benazon. For more information, go to www.benazon.com or click their logo on the Shift Shapers website. Benazon. Healthcare as it should be. Now, back to our interview. Well, yeah, and we talked at the open about a lot of companies and a lot of advisors have moved from talking about wellness, which I think most people see as just physical wellness, physical fitness, and maybe a diabetes program or a smoking cessation program. And we're talking more these days about well-being, which is a more holistic approach. I mean, employers and advisors today know that the entire person comes to work and you've got to deal with all of the things that that person brings with them. So the question is, what are the challenges of delivering financial wellness in the workplace? How does that actually work? Well, we have a saying here that employees don't leave their financial problems in the parking lot, right? They bring them into work with them. And so the challenge that you have is, is that employees are already solving their financial problems at work. It's not like they're not dealing with these things. They've, they've been dealing with them, but that has become what has led to employees not being as productive as they could be if they were financially well. Employees who perhaps are finding the wrong resources. Maybe they don't have access to a non-biased, you know, advisory source, something, somebody or something that would help give them information that's non-biased. And so, and then if you look at the industry too, right? Look at the industry and how the industry itself has become more transparent. 
and not just in the retirement planning field, but across all segments. So credit cards to how you get a mortgage to how you finance student loans, transparency through the internet is paramount. And so fee compression has increased a lot, right? So the fees have come down a lot. And what we've seen is, is across all areas from a vendor or product perspective, the institutions that have been providing financial information and the way that we could access information traditionally, like a, through a, an individual, through a person, an advisor, or through a broker or somebody who was actually going to give you information, that has moved more away from being consultative and general information to help you and more into a product. So more people now get their information on how they're going to buy something through the people who are selling them the products that they want to buy. And so there, you know, you think about that and there was a, a consumer report that was done that actually showed that because of this, what's happening is, is people are getting this information that is being sold to them where they think it's actually educational and they're not actually able to make educated decisions on that information because it's biased information. It's, it's really pushing them towards different products that they need to have. And so when you pull that advisor out of it or you pull that confidant or that person away that can give you good information, ultimately you have employees that are coming to work trying to solve their financial problems on the computer or through their coworkers. And it's the telephone game of bad decision and bad decision making. And ultimately what ends up happening is, is that if somebody bought a new car in the office and they perhaps made a bad financial decision in purchasing that car, then another employee might think, well, you know, I'm in that same job. Maybe I should drive a car that's as nice as, as that particular car. And so they go out and they do a very similar thing. And then when you go back and you trace that one purchase decision back to how it affects somebody financially, what you find is, is that if they, you know, did a five or excuse me, a six year or, 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 you know, an 84 month loan instead of a 60 month loan on that car, like traditionally we had in the past. And perhaps, you know, their, their debt to income ratio on that particular vehicle is five or six percentage points more than what they would have done in the past. And they're locked into this vehicle for that period of time. And now they're, that vehicle is depreciating and they become in a situation where they're, you know, unable to sell that vehicle at a time that they would like to because it's worth less than what they owe on it. Now you have somebody who's overpaying for something on a monthly basis, you know, for an extended period of time that's affecting their financial well-being, probably the average tenure of that employee's life cycle at that company. Because, you know, the average employee only stays at a company four and a half, five years. That's how long they're in that car for. And so now you have a financially unwell employee who made a poor financial decision based on things that are happening. So I'm kind of going down a, uh, a road here, but that happens all the time. And so those problems are being solved naturally in a workplace. And unless an employer and the, you know, the, the benefits advisor that's servicing that employer decides that we're going to have a corporate culture of financial well-being, that we're going to provide a place that is safe for these employees to come and consume information that's not biased at their tempo, the way that they want to consume it, solving the problems that they're trying to solve. Unless you're providing that, then what you're really doing is you're opening the door for all of these issues to, to come. And so we have to begin to start this process of providing people access to, to the information so that they can make intelligent decisions around their money. So the, the question that comes up then is, is how do you scale? And I, I guess when you, know, we, you and I were talking off air about generational differences. Are folks today in the workplace almost more comfortable, for lack of a, of a better phrase, 
working in an online solution, assuming the user experience is is credible and easy for them to use, then they might be trying to talk to an individual? I think the data shows that it's kind of all over the place. I think you can you can find data out there that would suggest that online is a, a great approach. Then you, there's other data that suggests, no, that people want to talk to somebody. And my answer to that would be, you know, all of the above. And it's really going to depend on the confidence level of the individual employee. And it's really going to depend on the situation that that person is in at that time and, and what they're going through. So it's very difficult to, you know, simplify yes or no there. But one thing we do know for sure is, is that when it comes to engagement and it comes to scalability, that the traditional model of having in-person meetings where we're sitting down meeting one by one with people trying to gather information, right? So we know who are the people that need the help the most, that we know who to get the person connected to the, to the actual individual real life person. Doing that and trying to scale it using a human only approach is too resource in- intensive and it's not cost effective. And there's no way to scale that. And so technology, as we have found through other sources, you know, whether it's how you engage with the CRM or how you engage with uh, Facebook or whatever the tools are that you're using that are, are technology, that we know that technology can solve for the scalability of engagement and data collection really well. And so by using technology to create the first engagement, to do the data collection for us, to do the um, the engaging elements of it, to find out who is at risk and, and who is not, and get the people that need the help, the actual help they need the most, then you're able to create a program that is scalable, that is realistic in cost, and that will actually work for everyone. So we, in the three minutes or so that we have left, it seems inevitable in almost every interview that we do now, we have a question about engagement. So let's not break the string. How do you drive or how does an employer drive engagement? What kind of engagement levels might they expect and how do they get there? Well, if you go back to the history of time, engagement is really, you know, built on a couple of human factors. So there's certainly some, some human elements there, but the way the method in which we've done it has changed as technology has changed, right? We went from radio, well, probably even before that, you know, there, there, there was leaflets, but leaflets to radio, to television, to, you know, the internet, to now mobile devices. And a really good indicator of who solves for this really well is the advertising industry. The advertising industry is their whole business evolves around creating engagement. And so if you look at the advertising industry and you see how they use data, you see how they're serving to you information when you need it, you know, where you need it and how you need it, then we can see what the future looks like in terms of engaging people. And so I think that, you know, taking somebody through a, a technology kind of assessment, right, to collect data, and that can be done in a number of ways, but doing it in a way that uh, is interesting and, and, prov- and provoking to the individual is, is definitely one way you start to do the data collection. And then as you start to use data, as you start to collect that data, coming back and reserving to the individual the thing that they need at the time that they need it is ultimately what's going to work currently for engagement. 
And that will change, you know, and the, and the industry will, the way we humans consume things will change. And our industry has to stay up with that. We can no longer just fall back on saying, well, this is how we've done it forever. And so this is the way we're going to do it. If, if we do that, then what's going to happen is, is that the marketing agencies who are selling these employees things, who are actually spending their money and making them unfinancially well, they are the ones that are going to win. And these employees are constantly going to be at odds in terms of their financial well-being. And so we have to use these tools for good. And we have to use the technology to really engage these folks into driving successful behaviors, driving successful goals that they want to achieve, the things that, that they're interested in achieving. Because once they do that, once they achieve the thing that they feel like, okay, I got my arms around this thing, what happens then? They have more confidence and that more confidence they have leads them to saying, now I can tackle something else. Now I feel like I got a handle on this. And that confidence is what creates instantaneous well-being around finances, which is why you don't have to reach you know, a number. You don't have to be fully financially funded in order to feel good and to feel successful around your finances. You need to be organized. You need to feel like you have your goals under control, that you understand what's coming next and what those challenges are. And if you're doing those things and, and we're able to serve the right content at the right time and using the data, then you're going to have a, an employee that's engaged that feels like they're, they're moving in the right direction. Instantaneous well-being sounds like a great place to leave our conversation for today. Chris Whitlow, founder at Educate. Chris, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved. 